0: Hello, I am Cody Ellingham, and this is the Transformation of Value podcast. This show is brought to you by Swarbricks, the first law firm in New Zealand to accept Bitcoin for legal services. The Swarbricks team are Bitcoiners, and they are knowledgeable about the legal aspects of Bitcoin in New Zealand, as well as general legal advice. Swarbricks offers a 20% discount for services paid in Bitcoin. Find out more at swarbrecks.co.nz/bitcoin. Now, in today's episode, I talk with Zed a Bitcoiner originally from the Czech Republic, but now living in Wellington, New Zealand where he organizes a local Bitcoin meetup. We dive into Zed's story, leaving the Czech Republic to go to London around the time of the Occupy movement where he first discovered Bitcoin. We talk about Bitcoin art and the role of popular culture in sharing new ways of thinking, as well as the cultural background that Zed brings to Bitcoin, having been born into a communist system. We also talk about how people such as the gypsies of Europe or the New Zealand Maori represent a different kind of relationship to the state that we can learn a lot from. I do hope you enjoy this episode. If you want to get in touch with me, please send an email to hello at com and I will get back to you. Otherwise, on to the show. I, I think with with an interview, the important that well, if, like, interview is the wrong word. With a conversation, the important thing is to relax and... Um, Just let it flow, you know? Yep. Um, Often, I think, when you look at Bitcoin stuff on the news, legacy media, they're very adversarial and kind of, they ask very pointy questions that are designed to make people emotional or put people in a corner. And it's not about trying to find the truth. Do you know what I mean?
1: Yeah, it's just to put a one-sided picture which people can easily swallow and feel like that is the truth.
0: Yeah, it's sort of the classic mainstream media thing and i don't know do you, do you know tv nz uh, i just signed up with them today to watch that
1: crypto series they released recently but i didn't watch them before or yeah it was a
0: wtf is crypto um okay. the show and i so i haven't owned a television in like 10 years mm. uh, but i i also signed up to watch that episode which was actually the content was okay but it was interesting because there was so much bullshit in it like just all these like graphics and stuff I was like, look just give me the information yeah yeah
1: well not surprising from mainstream media it's just a bit shame that when i saw it uh, online there was a lot of people like this is a great it's amazing content and everything but it's very crypto
0: focused and i haven't watched the episode yet so i'm just episode five which is about mining is 90 percent bitcoin there was a little bit of shilling of proof of stake by mm. the easy crypto people uh unfortunately uh mm. sort of showing their hand but in their defense i wonder how much of that was edited into like a sound bite that seemed like a it was proof of stake positive whereas actually she didn't say that i you know yeah. you, you, we will never know but for the most part it's focused on bitcoin mining and the sustainability aspect which i thought was really cool it's um, quite good So yeah, mining is a whole thing. But Zed, we caught up last night with a few of the Wellington Bitcoiners, uh, which was really cool. Um, And I know you're also running a Wellington meetup. I'm curious to understand your story, sort of where you came from and how you found yourself here at the bottom of the world in New Zealand. Where where are you originally from? So I'm originally from Czech Republic,
1: but it's been a long time since I left, I think around 2008. And I lived for a long time in London, and that's where I actually found Bitcoin and got involved in it because around 2000, end of 2013, I think was my first purchase of Bitcoin, I had to double check it yesterday because it feels like quite a while now. Yeah. And I was quite uh, full on uh, attached to peer to peer community there, because basically at that time I had no money at all. I saw this amazing thing which Bitcoin was and it seemed like amazing opportunity to get into it. What, what were you doing in London? So I completely failed my life in Czech Republic in terms of how people usually expect you to develop your life. Uh, I didn't finish my studies. I basically only have like secondary school. And so I kind of really felt like if I want to live some life, I will have to leave Czech because without a paper, without education, I have really no way to make a life for myself here. So I quite focused on learning English because I was like, I'm just going to go. It's going to be all right. So I had one friend in London at the time. I went to London and I just started work on anything, you know, kitchen porter job, security guard job, CCTV operation job. I uh, ended up in a small finance firm and worked there for a friend of my friend. And it was really boring. That kind of gave me a little bit of glimpse of you know, uh, how finance worked Is like, and I didn't like it. I mean, these people who everything was valued in pounds, you know, not in value like in personal growth or in how much you can actually help someone. It was everything like, this is how much this person is worth, this is how much this house is worth, and nothing else mattered for them. And I really felt it was very bleak. um, Yeah, I've heard that.
0: I've heard that criticism of London as a financial hub. You know, you've got a lot of money sloshing around, a lot of rich, like. Um, it's like rich rich russians and like immigrants children's and like old british money and they're all just mingling in this very elite class and then you've got other people who are just struggling to make ends meet and it's i don't know it's quite black and white almost zero sum you know these financial cities i I believe new york maybe has similar attributes Uh, but if you're trying to make make it work It can be quite challenging, right?
1: Yeah, it is very challenging. I actually arrived there with eight of my best friends. We all packed up in Czech Republic, sold everything and went there. And at the end, it was just me and my girlfriend who stayed there because no one else made it. It was just so difficult to enter there, you know, as an immigrant from kind of Eastern Europe, as they say in England. You have so much bureaucracy and so much paperwork that you need to have this in order to get a flat, in order to get a bank account, and nothing really works easily.
0: Yeah, yeah, it's interesting, sort of the <clears throat> Mother England, uh, sort of that class system I think is probably the most interesting thing, you know, I, I haven't been, been to the UK, uh, it's one of the places I'd like to visit and, and kind of reconnect with that side of my family, but I, I don't know, London, I, <laughs> it seems like it's a bit of, bit of an outlier, because there's certainly beautiful parts of the country, did you travel around other parts of the UK? Or?
1: Yeah, I think I probably traveled through most uh, parts of UK, all the uh, nice places like Scotland yeah. and Wales and Cornwall and Lake District. Hmm. Because uh, there is... UK is relatively big and a lot of it is farmland. So you actually have to travel quite far if you want to get to nature, especially from London. So that makes it a bit challenging, but there are nice parts in UK.
0: Yeah, I, and I think that it's... Uh, I, uh, perhaps I selfishly think maybe it's some of the nicer parts that we inherited here in New Zealand, but um, I mean, certainly there is the influence of, um, you know, capital, you know, I mean, New Zealand, I was talking to Matthew Birchall on the show a couple of weeks ago about, you know, the New Zealand company and the, the colonization project of New Zealand, which was funded through London. And I wonder how much has actually changed, you know, it's sort of this engine yeah. of finance, but um you did that um i am interested though going back to your your experience growing up in the czech republic like do you feel that maybe influenced your understanding and your relationship with bitcoin and and saying how that all works.
1: Yeah, I was actually thinking a lot about it as I was coming here and preparing my conversation. And I think there is a lot of aspects in Czech Republic which formed me as a Bitcoiner, but not just me. I think there is actually quite a big group of Bitcoiners because Czech Republic have actually very strong Bitcoin community and even like a lot of strong early development. And I think that one of the things which really shaped most of us is the fact that we had a communism there for fifty years and basically uh, it just finished when i was four years old when the communists left the country so basically whole generation of our parents grew under the communist regime and it was very different world you know because basically our parents have no way to leave the country only the ones who would be like very well established and very prominent with the communist regime would be allowed to go to croatia the holidays and things like that so even though i didn't actually live through it i think the uh, the shadow of it is still there and it really built up this distrust to authority distrust to government and i think a lot of people in czech republic has it so it it really when the bitcoin came in uh, there is this whole community of bitcoiners who are quite different from other places because they are more on this anarchic spectrum of the Crypto world and Bitcoin.
0: It's interesting you mentioned that. I'm just trying to remember. Was it
1: 1968? So uh, they
0: the the, the Prague. They left 1989. Yeah, but when they first came in, Uh, 1949. 1949. Okay, I'm just trying to think. 1968 stands out as a date in my mind. Was that the Prague? Uprising or or something. What? I'm not sure if there was in
1: 1968, but I know that there was the Velvet Revolution, and there was the 1989 when they were basically uh, moved away. Yeah, I'm,
0: I'm just left. sorry. I'm, I'm I might be conflating things here, but I I do remember Joseph Kudalka is a photographer. Okay, pretty um, yeah. pretty sure he's Czech. Oh, I'll, I'll, I'll just check that. But he he photographed. There's this famous photo of like. He's looking at his watch, and I'm just not sure whether it's Hungary or Czech Republic. It yeah. could be Hungary, potentially. I mean,
1: I'm, I'm not really sure. His story is not my strong feet, to be honest, but...
0: Yeah, yeah I'm, pretty, I'm pretty sure he's Czech. Yeah, Czech... I or, mean, it
1: sounds like a Czech name.
0: Yeah, Kodalka. Um, yeah, and he's got this...
1: Okay. Yeah, I may have to check it out as well.
0: Yeah, so that's... Um, he photograph. Uh, uh, Joseph Koudelka, he, he photographed um, some really interesting stuff. So he, he's, he's, he was operating sort of the 60s, 70s, 80s. Um, and he photographed a lot of gypsies and mm. uh, people who were displaced by communism. Um, but yeah, so this photograph, Prague, August 1968. And it's a photo that Joseph Koudelka took. And he's like holding his watch up. And you can see this main street of Prague empty as the Soviet tanks are starting to roll in. But certainly, I mean, I'm yeah. my history is not so good, sorry, but... um if, well, my history
1: should be good for Czech Republic, but yes. I have
0: gaps to catch up with. No, no, that's all good. The Prague Spring, Jaro. Oh, okay. Does that make sense? Praskejado. Yeah, yeah, I know, I, know. Yeah. I heard
1: of Prague Spring.
0: Yeah, so I think it was um, something that really inspired me to see that. And in, in the museum, in the photo, in the photo exhibition, they had these, like, five-meter black-and-white prints of his photos from 1968... Mm-hmm as well as some of his later work with, with the gypsies and kind of displaced people who didn't really fit into the communist system. Because even though it's sort of a, on the outside of yeah. equality, it's like, yeah, if you're unable to work or you're disabled or you're in a minority, mm-hmm. it, it actually, you don't fit in. And I don't know what your thoughts are. Yeah, and are. I
1: think the gypsy community is kind of quite uh, closed so they don't try to fit into other systems they just work within their small community or not small relatively big community but they don't try to like uh, work with this system and so they o- quite often end up on the sidelines and just doing their own thing
0: i, I wonder if if, and again this is something i've only ever learned about from others i haven't seen it with my own eyes but i wonder whether you know the romani and the, and the gypsy people of europe really represent one potential model for self-sovereignty because they don't really identify with any state system, right?
1: Yeah, so I have first hand experience with a lot of them. Actually, where I was, uh, where I grew up in my town, we ha- used to fight with them a lot all the time. That was also a reason why I got early into martial arts yeah. because I needed this. But you know, there was a very one-sided picture of them as I was growing up through. Czech people and Czech media, basically, they were always identified as this lazy people who don't work, who misuse the system, who just have a lot of children and take, uh, take payments from government. But as I kind of grew a bit older, I made friends with some of them because we lived in a similar places for quite a lot, a long time and. I realized that actually their community is very unique in this time and age where the division of uh, our society is uh, kind of getting stronger and stronger and the families are just getting a bit more uh, cold with each other and such. They actually still have the strong family unit which work uh, as one. So basically, as Czech people kept complaining about these gypsies still having the wealth, still having the money, still being able to deal with the life, I kind of realized that it is because they don't work as a unit of two as a family. They don't work as unit as one, as an individual. They work as a extended family of 50 members. And it doesn't matter if some of them live in the UK or if some of them live in Czech Republic or if some of them move to Canada. They really have this network when they share the information with the rest of the family, how they can be better off, how you can get a better job, how you can get uh, maybe government support and things like that. And this really gives them uh, massive opportunity. You know, they, This gives them really strong way how to deal with everything.
0: Yeah, it's, it's similar perhaps if we look at, say, the history of Maori society here in New Zealand and, you know, we were talking about this last night, but the uh, the imposition of the iwi structure, the tribal structure from you know, uh, from the colonial government to kind of divvy up what was effectively hapu and, and extended family groups um, you know, traditionally and that sort of speaks to a similar thing where you've got these very large community or not very large but you know much larger than a small family of you know know, parents and children you've got these extended families that can support each other and kind of it's it's like this network effect it's very decentralized I think that's the key word (laughs) you know Um, and I wonder whether there's something we can learn from that because you've also got they have their own language or their kind of pigeon language of whatever place they're living plus their own Yes, sort yeah. of encryption. Yeah, yeah. Right for talking to each other, they've got their own networks. It's parallel to the the, the state based system.
1: Mm-hmm. They are kind of like parallel uh, parallel family system. They they integrate into wherever they live. And I had this opportunity even to end up like being in some of the gypsy famous weddings and places like this. And it just felt amazing. You know, the uh, bond between the family was so strong that for me, like growing in Czech Republic with broken family and in post-communist era where people just didn't trust each other. This was so different energy. So I actually learned to quite appreciate them. My early picture of just them being the people who abuse everybody else. Uh, shattered, and I actually really appreciate them for who they are and how they manage to survive in this strange time.
0: Yeah and I think there's a again just from what I've read but there, there's a seems to be a lot of kind of in, ingenuity in terms of how they do things you know their way of living their approach to life it's sort of a, a very humble but also very practical. They They have this extended family network that they can rely upon um international and in, in some cases and they just do their own thing and when the government is is handing out money they'll certainly take it but they're not dependent on it they sort of i don't know it's, it's a very practical way of living
1: yeah i think so yeah i think it worked quite well for them as opposed to other czech people who just complain about it
0: yeah well because i had another good friend in tokyo who's um who grew up in, in Czechoslovakia, but on sort of the uh, you know the other side, there's you know, um, Slovakia, and he he talks about similar things. You know, back then Prague was still the, the capital, you know, and a very similar experience. You know, you you, you couldn't trust each other. Yeah. You know, he's probably same age as us, maybe a little yeah, bit okay. older, but you, you couldn't trust anyone. And um, London seemed to be sort of the regional centre where a lot of people ended up. Um, as sort of a stable place that was outside of a lot of the chaos of Europe Um, and he found his way to Tokyo um, some years later but it was certainly interesting to hear him talk about it Um, and he, he understood Bitcoin really well when we were talking about it last time I was over there he 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 sort of naturally got it, and I mean, you you obviously get it. So, out of the the people from you know what was it formerly the you know Czechoslovakia, you know, it's like two out of two. They they understand what it means, and I don't know. Do you think there's a wider awareness of Bitcoin? Well, uh, it's hard for me to
1: talk about it because I didn't live there since 2008. I only come there very briefly. But certainly, you know, in early Bitcoin days, which I would call my 2014s and such, a lot of things came out of Czech Republic, no? Like a Bitcoin treasurer, a first slash mining pool. Trezor, did you say?
0: Mm-hmm. Oh, the hardware wallet?
1: Yeah, yeah. It is from Czech Republic and it was actually first uh, hardware wallet in the world. And then the ledger and other wallets kind of follow the same model and such. Is, is, is Brains out of... Yes, Brains uh, pool is out of the slush pool. It's basically the continuation and they evolved the technology to... Uh, and and the ATMs as well. Right? Yes, general Bytes. General bites from Czech Republic. And because there's, um, they had a conference as well. Was it BTC Prague? BTC Prague, it was, I think, first year this year. I hope to go next year for next one. But there is a long-standing conference which was called Hackers' Congress that started in 2014 and it was always about kind of this blend between Bitcoin and art and it was really nice. I mean, it's kind of connected these two different words like artist and cyberpunks or whatever you want to call them, cyberpunks. Are you
0: familiar with um, Franz Kafka. I read a couple of books of Kafka. Yeah, he's a legend. So yeah, how would you say? Because I, I, I mean, for people who who aren't aware his his writing, it can be difficult to engage with sometimes because it's quite cryptic in, in the, the kind of the, the old sense of the word. Um, and and almost you can see the the communist influence of you know just this frustration with bureaucracy and and that sort of thing, but certainly very beautiful writing um and i wonder whether that plays a role in uh, this kind of artistic um you know what you said with hacker congress kind of anarchist kind of political technology you know meets art um i don't know what are your thoughts on that
1: yeah, I mean, uh, certainly Franz Kafka is well known in this parts of world. And it's very hard to describe his style or the yeah. way how he writes, because it's really kind of very abstract, dark. And you but uh, you get a strong feeling of the time and age where when he was writing these pieces. And uh, I'm not much of uh, much present in the art sphere. But we had this group which was called Stohoven and they were this anarchistic artist uh, group doing a lot of strange gigs around czech republic so for example they would pretend that new supermarket is opening in a place and they would send to media a lot of advertisement that is going to be massive discounts and such and then they built on top of this hill just this kind of one side wall which looked like supermarket and they hyped up a lot of people around the republic for this grand opening yeah. and then thousands of people <laughs> rushed to the shop and just to figure out it was just the facade you know yeah that,
0: and that, that um that sort of stuff really interests me because again Franz kafka he, he was based in prague but i'm pretty sure it was still part of austria hungary um the, you know the, Possibly. The, the old the old way um but effectively you know modern day czech republic um is where he was based and he, he wrote these books and uh, there's this one um uh, 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 what was it the castle I believe yeah i did not do but you know what castle what in the clouds or what is it yeah <laughs> and he and it's like he's he, it basically you know the, the, his whole mission is to just get somehow get a a meeting or to get into this castle on top of the hill and, and he goes through all of these people and he's like ask them how do i get there and then the person it's like this uh this criticism of bureaucracy bureaucracy where he's oh you've got to ring that guy and then you got to do this thing and you've got to do that and it's like a bad dream where you're you know you're, you're doing some re- repetitive task and it never finishes it's this kind of almost nightmare situation and then the book suddenly just ends and, hmm. he, and he never gets there and it's very like disconcerting to read yeah.
1: yeah, I I read his uh, book The Trial or what yeah. is the English tra- uh, pr- uh, translation, and it had very similar feel to this. You know, just this bureaucracy being caught in a trial which you don't understand for the reason you don't understand, not being given any uh, any judgment on you and such, and just a whole book he's lost there trying to figure out what's going on, and it didn't end up very well as well. So
0: there's a Japanese author uh, uh Abe who writes similar stuff and and I find it difficult personally to engage with. I mean it's powerful work but it's like you've you can sense yourself losing a connection to reality as you read it. It's like it's what you'd colloquially call a, a mind fuck. <laughs> Very uh, interesting. Yeah. But I uh, I'm just really curious because it seems like that sort of thinking um it's a sort of like what what created that that kind of work to emerge and, and obviously Prague, beautiful city um, you know academic, intellectual capital you know of of the 19th century you know in, in many ways um, lots of amazing work came out of that and it's sort of between Prague and Vienna so much work and literature and philosophy came out and yet it sort of had this era of communism as well and this kind of uh, repression of that sort of yeah those two things you know like how do they fit together
1: yeah that's a good question i mean certainly it bred the kind of people who we these days call bitcoiners yeah because a lot of people really feel strong distrust to uh, authority and government and even pre-democracy this basically is in our roots for the last two generations and so I think the bitcoin scene in czech republic is very good and also it's very interesting to see the early stages in like in this hackers congress when the art merged with the bitcoin and there was so interesting talks you know i really like it i think it was very different to what we have these days in a conferences about bitcoin around the world where everybody's just saying okay bitcoin is great this is what we are building this is how we're going to change the world which is good message but the vibe was very different when it was like half of this strong artistic crypto anarchists you could say yeah. and half bitcoiners and i really enjoyed it at the time but a lot of influence there a lot of a lot of different things happened in the past and
0: well, I can see your T-shirt says "Institute of Crypto Anarchy," and um, I mean that's—I think that's what really interests me again from the artistic angle—is what you talked about this this uh, collective group that did the the fake supermarket on a, on a wall and and created all this media hype. That the kind of intervention and and you saw um, a little bit of that. Um, I mean, there there are these kind of postmodern takes on on these critiques and and i think people shit on postmodernism, but it certainly has some really powerful um kind of critiques and parodies and plays on on what's happening um there's this group i'm just trying to remember what they're called i think they might be called the yes men um okay. and they did stuff where they would like put on suits and try and like get on to cnn or bbc and pretend to be the executive of a company okay um And they did they did one where they um, they were talking about this chemical spill that happened in India that was caused by Dow Chemical, a big U.S. corporation, and they um, apologized and they said that they would be remunerating all of the families and they were going to fix everything. And, you know, they're trying to take social responsibility Um, and they, you know, they went on and, and everyone thought it was for real. And then Dow Chemical had to come out and say, "Oh, actually, we're not going to do any of that stuff." But yeah, it's the 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 yes men. So they they call themselves sort of, ja- I think, culture jamming, culture jamming yeah. activists. And I don't know how much of that we see today because a lot of a lot of art, the art world, in my experience, has been extremely captured and made redundant in terms of critique. Like you don't see art that really asks pointy questions though they think they are. Do do you sort of know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, I know what you mean. So there isn't
1: too uh, too much of art which would really point into the bigger picture and such because, I mean, it's not a place where you make money It needs people who are strong enough to uh, believe that what they are doing is worth maybe spending some days in jail and having some issues because you end up having issues. But I think it's more important than ever, you know, to ask the bigger questions and disrupt a little bit of the uh, usual
0: minds and mindsets. Yeah, I I think that's where we're in this interesting place. And again, you know, I, I read, I can read the text of... You know, we talk about art as, as text. You know, you can read the visual image or what, what the artist is trying to do. And, you know, I, I think in a way where, where we are at today, a lot of art has been captured by the political state apparatus. And so stuff like climate change, hysteria, or kind of what you call clown world, the artist community for the most part feeds right into that. And to actually come out and do something like quite revolutionary that's counterculture is like people come down on it really hard and i think bitcoin fits into that bitcoin is a threat to the status quo and so why is there not more artwork that's talking about that and why is you know all of the artwork you see out there either apolitical or actually encouraging the status quo that's sort of
1: yeah i guess uh, it comes down to what most things does and that's the incentives no like if you are artist and you want to make your piece to be known and if you want to make some money out of it you just have to play the game as everybody else so it's a bit sad reality but as uh, as was said in the fiat standard if you read it like basically art now become a place where people store money so you just make something you looking all right and hope that people's going to use it to store the money in it and it may get the value i don't think there is too much too much art of giving the messages out or showing the bigger picture or just pointing out to the issues
0: yeah i think that was what was quite eye-opening for me when i first moved over to tokyo which is a hyper consumer culture like in in ways that are unimaginable you know i I don't know about you know your, your upbringing but certainly for me country boy from new zealand you know like there's no such thing as luxury brands at least back then and you know everyone in japan they speak this language of fashion and culture and to come into that from the outside is like learning a second language and um i mean it's it's i mean it's kind of quaint but you know growing up in you know in rural Hawkes bay it's sort of you you know you you don't wear nice clothes because they're going to get dirty because you're going to go you know um Go and do some work on the farm or whatever um and that sort of hyperculture leads to this very consumer commercialized art space and so there was a period of avant-garde kind of really uh, profound critique i think in the 60s and 70s in in japan which i think in many countries there was this kind of uh, awareness this kind of countercultural movement but then it sort of got captured and became extremely commercial and I've, I've always found something really uncomfortable about it because I, I am a commercial artist in a sense you know i sell work but i've always been motivated by the deeper kind of meaning making and i'm i was always attracted to the kind of work that as i said the yes men or, or someone like Banksy is able mm-hmm. able to collect both financial incentives but they mm-hmm. also make this kind of political impact and i don't know there's a little bit of bitcoin art out there but uh, it's still, I don't know, we're in this funny place at the moment.
1: I mean, it's c- catching up slowly, you know, it is. Uh, Bitcoin is capturing many places, but it just goes one step at a time. So uh, you can see a lot of Bitcoin art appearing around Spain, around Barcelona and such. And you can see a lot of stickers all around, but I guess we just have to give it a bit more time. If you see like, for example, this girl from New Zealand, Tip, no, like what she did in a conference in uh, Pacific, it was quite nice to see. It was very fresh and a new wind toward to what is happening in a Bitcoin scene? Suddenly, you see this very young girl kind of rapping there with a lot of projection, and it was like a very different way how to deliver. You would call this like a modern Bitcoin art, mm. you know? Uh, maybe it just needs a little bit more time when we break up to the younger generations, and they will start like uh, building on top of things we don't do at the moment because we are a bit older and more conservative, and we just move with the time.
0: Yeah, I, th- I think when i look at it broadly we're in very early stages where it's very direct references to bitcoin and so you know what you talk about is bitcoin art it's like you know uh, banksy type spray painting in barcelona or you know rapping about bitcoin topics and central banking and that sort of thing but i think the the second generation of bitcoin art which i'm hoping emerges soon or it's beginning to emerge is work that assumes bitcoin you know, everyone knows what Bitcoin is, but it starts operating on a, on a second layer of sort of meaning making. Because I think orange bees spray painted on the wall only go so far, but things like cinema, TikTok, music, all of these different media that they need that they they can speak to a bigger idea that doesn't really come through um, if you're too uh, direct. And so, an example of that. Uh, if you look at, say, some of the cinema from the 80s uh, about America and sort of what America is, it wasn't overtly um, capitalist, but something, I don't know if you know, like um, uh, Ferris Bueller's Day Off or The Breakfast Club or some of these kind of really. teenage, uh, teenage movies from the 1980s. Um, there was a director, um, John Hughes. Who did a lot of these sort of films, and they talk about this kind of golden America where you've got like you know the jock and he plays football, and you've got the nuclear family, you've got you know the kids driving around or or whatnot, or, or something like the Beach Boys when it comes to music, you know, you know mm-hmm. driving their cars around California and and this kind of euphoria of capitalism that comes through in that period, say from the maybe the the late the late fifties through to the eighties where anything seems possible and it's underpinned by this idea of American excellence and American capitalism and the primacy of that um, and, and at no point do they ever sit down and have a a dialogue about capitalism. It just is within the system of the film or the movie or, uh, or the, f- the film or the music and and I always found that curious because in the same vein, I, are you familiar with like Andrei Tarkovsky or any of the Soviet filmmakers? No, not really. They, they have the complete opposite, and so Tarkovsky's operating you know outside of Hollywood, and mm-hmm. he's you know funded by the Soviets to build to make these films and he, he did stuff like Solaris, uh, which is like a three hour epic film about mm-hmm. this discovery of the South and a very introspective, kind of like a Franz Kafka sci-fi type thing.. Yep. but because he wasn't driven by the incentives of Hollywood to make a, a popcorn flick, mm-hmm. he, he was able to go into this deep place. And a lot of Russian-Soviet literature goes deep into the human soul. And that was, it wasn't something you necessarily got um, yeah. in, in that kind of golden era of you know, 1960s, 1980s. So, I don't know, just sort of throwing it out there. I, I wonder whether that's to come.
1: Yeah, so uh, I can see you kind of hoping that the Bitcoin will move a little bit towards the fact that it will bring the inner values a bit higher, and it will manifest itself in other places like a film, art and such. And yeah, it's well needed, no, because we are in this vacuum of having a lot of movies, which have zero value, having a lot of art, which have zero value, it would be really nice to kind of see a little bit of adjustment of getting into things which actually gives you value. I mean, you spend two hours watching something and you don't feel like oh, I just wasted two hours of my life for nothing. Yeah. So I mean, I really enjoy movies which gives you some feed for thought you would say you know when you carry on walking for a week and you think like hmm, this really kind of left some mark in me and i have something to question and think about i mean it's
0: great what, what are some of your favorite movies or th- movies that have inspired you
1: well uh, of course matrix was great even though it's hollywood and such uh, but i'm not much of a movie person to be honest i mean uh, i i but read books. I like books and uh, lately I don't watch any movies because I just, hey, I just yeah. find it's completely <laughs> pointless. I like sci-fi, so uh, time to time I got tempted to watch some sci-fi, but it's
0: all very similar. It's an interesting in terms of sci-fi in particular, you know, I'm, I think we're in this area now where what is sci-fi has compressed down into this kind of parody of itself, like... If you go back to uh, Arthur C. Clarke, 2001, mm-hmm. Space Odyssey, um, that was like 19, same as the Prague Spring, 1968, I believe, and uh, Stanley Kubrick. And that uh, it was very revolutionary and, and, and forward-looking. And it kind of, again, this the high of post-war American capitalism, which pretty much, you know, they, they put men on the moon, they extended that runway into the future and said well what if we kept Mm -hmm. going and they predict you know 2001 we would be colonizing uh you know the mars or or the moons of of jupiter and uh, it was this kind of vision of the future but we never quite got there and instead 2001 we got um you know the september 11th Mm. attacks um, and you know this beginning of the endless war in, in the middle east and it was sort of the the decay of that dream which is really interesting And in a way, um, you mentioned The Matrix, which I remember seeing as well when I was, you know, when I was a bit of a kid. And um, it it sort of, it actually is based on, um, there's a lot of influences there from Japanese cinema. So um, Ghost in the Shell, Mm -hmm. uh, as you know, big influence. And then there's a a book, uh, Paprika, which got later made into a movie, which has some of these ideas of like the dream and the kind of Mm -hmm. metaphysical sort of of idea And, and that. And I think a lot of that fed into it and uh, the Wachowski um, brothers were able to take that and turn it into something that was palatable for, they sort of translated it into something that would be accessible to an American audience. Yeah. Um, But it certainly asked a lot of questions and I think The Matrix gets referenced quite a lot. I mean, people talk about the orange pill, they talk (laughs) about, you know, um, going down the rabbit hole, uh, sort of Alice Wonderland reference, but... There's sort of these cultural references, which are quite relevant, and so we've got that language now.
1: Yeah.
0: And we can—I mean, you can talk about Matrix, and we know what that means in relation to Bitcoin.
1: Mm-hmm. It kind of gets its second uh, second wind with the Bitcoiners. The movie kind of gets back to life. Yeah. It's going to be quite interesting because the generation now, these kids will probably never heard of Matrix, so they will not see it. So this has now become more as a uh movie which is too old to watch and such but it still gives good value
0: yeah i find that curious because um I, I think there's this interesting compression of generations where you and i and our parents and and in fact actually my my grandparents as well we have a shared cultural lexicon or shared cultural language when it comes to cinema and so you know i remember sitting on the couch watching hogan's heroes or a bridge too far or you know the, the deer hunter you know movies from like the 60s and 70s and stuff with with my grandparents and we shared that cultural moment and that's not something that generation z and mm-hmm. and the young kids today have because they don't have a television in the house they're on tiktok they're on youtube and so that that there's a greater divide between the cultural language between those the, the young kids and then everyone else yeah um and in a way a lot can be lost through that So maybe similar to communism where you know there's this intergenerational experience of communism and then maybe kids growing up today and and check they will have like, no clue no no fucking idea yeah. and then they say oh i want to be a communist <laughs>
1: yeah, yeah i mean the thing is there was quite a growth in uh, popularity of communism because People now look for any other way you know they think that what's uh, what's now is not working, so we just want anything else, yeah. but if you don't do your history lessons, maybe you are running in very wrong
0: direction yeah and and also the, the 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 importance of of discourse and I think you know I'm a big fan of of cafe culture and we're talking about Prague and Vienna and then sort of the the salon you know talking about ideas and in fact last night we all you know a bunch of us wellington bitcoiners caught up and had a had a drink and i thought man that really felt like the kind of conversation that one day people will look back and be like yeah that that was where it all came from those those small groups of people who had this vision for what could be and they made new new thought happen
1: Yeah, I think it is incredibly powerful and amazing experience to have been living through, you know, like, you basically think this small thing uh, could potentially change the world. But the idea seems so insane that you even don't dare to speak it loud with other people. And then you fast forward 10 years, and it's here and it's having its roots everywhere and it's growing massively. And it takes really some kind of person with a vision to get into this space and really like feel it because I, Orange Pill, everybody I know, basically, all my family, most of my friends and such, but it's very different, you know, a lot of people come and they feel like, oh, this is a great way how I make savings. But for me, this is not a thing. For me, this is, the, this is the great way how we have a shot to change the world for, weather, for everyone. And I mean, it's amazing to be part of it, even as a small community and watch this space and experience it. Well, growing.
0: That, that sort of reminds me of what you talked about, you know, this lived experience of people like yourself who, who grew up with sort of early memories, perhaps, of the end of the Soviet Union and communism and the Czech Republic. It's it's like everyone comes to Bitcoin with their own cultural background and we can meet at the table and share that. And so the the cultural background of your classic, you know, Texan, American, Bitcoiner, of, you know, uh, government overreach and kind of, uh, you know, the history of the, you know, the constitution and all of that is is one thing. And then you've got, you know, former Soviet countries, uh, you've got maybe the Chinese, you've got the Japanese, Mm -hmm. different people who have something within their history that speaks to the dangers of centralization, uh, speaks to the dangers of trusting politicians and central bankers. Um, and and then we can find commonality there, and it's sort of in this really interesting way. It's like a an international movement, but not in a kind of classic communist sense. Like we don't have to agree on anything else except Bitcoin, and we can get along. You know what I mean?
1: Yeah, yeah, I know, so that, I know what you mean. Yeah, I think uh, this is just the. Uh, This is just the way, uh, how you said, everybody finds the Bitcoin for slightly different reason. But I kind of see that we have similarities for like, for me, the Czech Republic uh, Bitcoin community have this very similar loot, as I said, like this anarchistic movement towards Bitcoin. So I guess that in different cultures, you are shaped differently. But there will be class of people who will see the issues of the current world, who will see the problems and really think like, what can we do? How can we improve it? And unfortunately, I mean, I thought about this for a lot. Before I got to Bitcoin, I got to the world where nothing was working everything was falling apart and no one was talking about it and i thought i'm crazy i was like why everybody just goes around and put, puts up with it and feels like it's all right why no one is protesting why no one is finding places to change and uh, it's actually it's actually really nice and fresh when you find people who who do like for me it was for first time it was in occupy movement 2012 in london and they suddenly i came to people and they're like ha. Huh, Here they are, camping on the streets in tents, but this is where I first time experienced the bigger debate opening, like the issues opening, and I was like, this is great, there are actually other people who feel this is not working, and so... It is it is important. It is important to get together and just do things and the problem is, you know, uh, traditional means of changing things doesn't really seem to bring good results. I mean, if you think about it a bit deeper, you go to protest in the streets, you are being laughed at and in one day everything goes back to normal. You go to try to vote people into government, they will get very quickly corrupted or kicked out or co opted. Uh, So there wasn't really any way how you can change the system. And then, you know, you look a bit, uh, so what would be the example in the history where someone managed and you see Gandhi, Gandhi managed like massive change, which with this movement of nonviolent, no cooperation. And this really kind of stayed with me strongly, nonviolent, cooperation. If you fight, you're not going to win, they have more weapons, more soldiers, more money. So you kind of need to really undermine the authority by showing that there is a system which works better, cheaper, doesn't exploit you and such. And this all comes back to Bitcoin, you know, and you look for what would be the other shot we have? like. How could we get a grassroots movement, which would not get destroyed and co-opted? There isn't really that many ch- chances, that many like, ways,
0: so... Yeah. So how were you involved with the Occupy movement in London?
1: I wasn't involved that much. I mean, I was very interested to have a debate. Yeah. It was the first time I felt like, okay, there are people who I have a shared means to talk. I can finally not feel like a crazy weirdo, and I can go to these streets, and so I usually just brought some food to donate. But unfortunately, I was in a difficult position because at the time I was working for this small finance firm. And as soon as someone started to talk with me and learn that I work in finance, I was the enemy. (laughs) So I was like, yeah, I work for them guys, but it doesn't mean I like agree with their culture. I'm there to make money to be able to go and travel. So Occupy Movement was super strong. This really kind of built, uh, make me realize, okay, this is a problem, which is not only in my head, but we need to work on this with other people. And then, very shortly after, Anonymous appear in the world scene, and this completely moved the border to a different level. Now, suddenly, we had this movement of people born in a cyberspace, which were able to like go and get things done, and it was like amazing. It really felt very empowering. And so, this all happened between 2011, 2012. It was massively changing for me, at least. I felt like the global shift happened at this time. The debate opened. New borders to fight for freedom opened. Really shaped my early, uh, relatively early understanding of what we want to do in this world. And like, we, this is worth putting focus on. And also, I started to learn a lot of things. And this was my opening. Okay, what is the privacy on uh, online? What should I do? How I'm being spied on? Uh, what is the your financial privacy? And it kind of really prepared me for my Bitcoin moment because I, I just got there and I was like, when Bitcoin arrived to me, I said, ah, this is what I was waiting for.
0: Yeah, and and what in what particular moment though did you feel that you you got it and and you you saw what Bitcoin really represented? Was there a a, a moment or a meeting that really sealed it?
1: It was immediately, you know. So I was looking for VPN. That was the basic tool to for your privacy online. Um, but I was well aware that how VPN can be private when you pay with it with your credit card and your name is tied to your account which which provides you private communication but if the government official comes and asks, you, they just get your name and your tunnel. So I was like this is really strange so I looked through a couple of different VPN options and I was lucky enough that one of them actually had Bitcoin option as a payment in 2013. And I was like, ah, what is this Bitcoin thing? And they just get me to read a little bit about it, I'm like, "I was. this is very interesting. This sounds like it could have some potential. But you know, you have to learn. It's not like you just say, ah, oh, this is great, let's buy. There is so much scam and so much of these different things that you. we are all skeptic against anything new. So I started to learn about it, but it very quickly clicked with me as a person who was molded in a way to this moment in the life that, okay, this is the thing I was waiting for. This is why, all my life, I could not really feel like what would be the purpose worth putting your energy to. And I was like, this is it, because this can have the potential to change everything.
0: Yeah, that's um, that's incredible. Um, you know, to discover it and to to understand it and. Again, with your background, it seems like you were able to see that because certainly for myself, it took a lot longer, and it really took the last couple of years for me to fully synthesize everything that I had seen. Um, and I'm I'm curious, Zed, sort of, you're you know you've been living in New Zealand for a while now. Um, so I arrived first time 2017, but yeah. I kind of uh, came and left a couple of times. Yeah. I mean, what's been your experience having spoken with, I guess, a lot of New Zealanders? Like, how do you see the perception from the outside or sort of semi from the outside of the the collective approach to Bitcoin or collective understanding of Bitcoin from from within New Zealand? Like, do you have any thoughts or... Or ideas around how that's worked so far.
1: Yeah, so uh, I, I feel like New Zealand is probably one of the last countries <laughs> in the planet which will need Bitcoin. Yeah. And that's kind of reflected in how people uh, think about it here and how much are they interested. I mean, Bitcoin is really the tool which helps the most people who need it. It, it was built for people who need it and unfortunately new zealand is this paradise at the end of the world where everything works perfectly and people are happy or at least that's the uh, perception sent to the rest of the world so i feel like uh, new zealand have a lot of a lot of work to catch up with what's going on in around the world because Even though that you are here or we are here at the end of the world and everything seems still working fine, still reasonably all right, when the system uh, starts cracking more in US, UK, Australia, it will come here. And it will it will be much better to get people like Reddy and to get there uh, to start being self sovereign, self sufficient a bit more.
0: Yeah, yeah. It's um, it's interesting you mentioned that. You know I'm I'm really interested in the parallels with um, colonial Africa and New Zealand is, is certainly a very different uh, historical situation. But the the project of colonization, which is a you know a perennial theme, you know publicly. Um, as, as often talked about. And you, if you look at, I, I believe it was Ian Smith, who was the former prime minister of Zimbabwe, or, you know, Southern, Southern Rhodesia, I think it used to be called. He talked about how Zimbabwe was more British than Britain. And he was quite mm. surprised when he went back to the UK in the 70s or whatever and saw just how different it was. And in many ways, I look around me in Wellington, even the name Wellington, the Duke of Wellington, it's like, yeah it's this memory this quaint memory of some kind of colonial past which and and not in the this the way we talk about colonialism today but like just literally in the bricks and the street names and this this sort of society yes. you know afternoon tea um you know farming mutton and in uh, in Hawkes bay and and just kind of this this very quaint northern england kind of lifestyle and i feel like it's it's almost Impossible for that to continue to exist in a hyper-globalized economy of Bitcoin and AI and all of this other stuff. It's sort of like almost going to be a shame when that collapses, because it is, it is quaint. You know, you go down to the beach, you you go mountain biking, you go, you know, you you go and have a have a cup of tea with, with with Nana. You know, it's like there isn't this influence really like because we're so far away from everything where the world the world doesn't seem to be here it seems to be over there yeah but when the world comes here which it will it's going to be like uh, i think an existential crisis Potentially.
1: <laughs> yeah, I mean, potentially it's going to be, it just depends how quickly it unfolds and how well people will be prepared. But I think uh, coming back to previous question a little bit, uh, there is a great potential for Maori people yes. to to get a bit more sovereignty and more uh, like strength in, the, in New Zealand through Bitcoin. So I think probably what would be very good focus here is to get it to the Maori communities. Because they are the they are the minority still, even though they have quite good power. Uh, I think they would, if they would understand it, they would really welcome it because it would this would give them back the power they per- lost quite a lot during the yeah.
0: colonization and. It's, it's interesting. I mean, we were talking about this last night, obviously, and we had some preeminent uh, historians in the in the room with us, so we kind of got some some take on it. But I mean, obviously, the project of colonization and and the way we talk about it is extremely nuanced and complex and i think it it gets boiled down to a kind of a binary like Mm -hmm. this is good and that was bad but i think i agree with you that bitcoin maps so well onto um, maori culture and as we talked about before the the gypsy culture of of eastern europe and and, in europe um like the, the the hapu the decentralized family structure the um you know the try the, the tribal system the kind of uh, consensus building because you know the, the 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 way a lot of maori communities make decisions is consensus building mm-hmm. and doing the work it's a bit like a, a bip you know like yep. if you want to yeah, yeah. um someone's telling me you know uh you know trying to use uh, they were building a new marae in in hawks bay and Oh, you know, A friend of mine's a family member was trying to propose using steel beams instead of wood for the marae, mm-hmm. for the fare, And it was not how you did a marae back then. It took a lot of consensus building to do that. And so they, start, they built this one with, with steel framing. And now all of the marae that are built today use steel framing. Okay. And it was this kind of innovat- innovative approach. So it's sort of like you've got the bips and this consensus building. You've got the decentralized nature. You've got this... Uh, I think deep down, uh, a resentment—maybe uh, not resentment, but uh, a criticism or a, a, an adver- adversarial relationship to the state. Mm-hmm. You've got self-sovereignty questions. People like um, uh, up in Gisborne and Karamoana and that kind of like self-sovereign, like yep. fuck, fuck off kind yeah, of thing. Yeah. So you're you're right. It really maps onto Bitcoin quite well
1: and i guess also the fact that bitcoin as it is now is really thought of and used as a store of value and potentially generational wealth as we talk about it that could work really well for these extended communities and extended families where basically it could really help a whole family to rise up and get to better life standards and
0: yeah we're in this interesting place where you know a lot of the policies and a lot of the just the, sh- the shit that you, that you see coming out of, of government if anything what it does is it disempowers maori people and i've seen that firsthand it creates uh, this kind of victimization and this kind of sense of historical injustice but without providing any tools tools or kind of pathways out of that and so it's it's like negative but without a positive and, yeah. and i believe there is a bitcoin shaped hole in that, all of that stuff where Yes, you know. So there, there was some historical injustice, and there were some some challenges there, but there is this way to get out of it, and and this function that you can anyone can pick up and use. It's called Bitcoin. This thing, and if you use this, you can improve your situation, and I think that kind of cultural change or attitude change is it's just like a little little change in direction, but it goes from. Going to the state for assistance to going back to themselves and saying, well, look, we can do this on our own. Fuck the state. You know what I mean? Sorry to be frank, but how do I mean how do we do that I don't know
1: yeah so it is a bit difficult yes. now to kind of approach them because they are a bit more closed community and such and so it's not easy for us as a white man from Wellington come and preach Maoris how they should use Bitcoin well,
0: well that's it though I mean that, that is a common criticism though I believe it is a there is a relationship there that can be built and what it is is about having an open discussion and I, and I think at the moment, it gets very exclusionary. Like, unless you're already within the, the, the group, you can't really have a voice. And, and I think that's that's probably almost fostered by the government. They sort of defer and they say, oh, well, you know, unless you're, you know, 100% Maori and you're, oh, yeah. you're, you're fluent in Reo and you can do all of this stuff, only you can promote new ideas. But the history of Maori society has always been about taking ideas from other people and incorporating that. You know like we talked about it a couple of months ago with ben javi but the maori king tafio he, he went over to the to england and petitioned the queen to set up a bank in new zealand like a maori bank and there was this period in the 19th century where there was all of this innovation happening and maori society quickly adapted and urbanized and industrialized and a lot of things and, and there were historical challenges there but for the most part they didn't stand still but in a way, now what we've got with the state is a sort of paternal um, directive to just not change mm-hmm. and not innovate.
1: Yes, I, I see what you mean. You know what I mean? Like, yeah.
0: And I think that's the challenge. And again, I, I blame the state for it, but um, the state has taken its incentives from somewhere. I don't know, maybe it creates a dependency and gets mm-hmm. the votes or something, but... Um, Keep a little
1: bit more control over the community
0: and ultimately um as i said you know i I think there's a huge amount of innovation possible maori culture is a lot more resilient um if you look at the structure at least of Mm -hmm. the decentralization a little bit like the gypsy stuff um that they you know they're able to do it and and even where my father lives now you know there's a quite a big maori community there and you know they're very self-sufficient you know i guess
1: it comes from distrust of government that they really need to rely on them and their families and
0: yeah and and i think that's that's a theme that we can take and it's it's very controversial because you know you bring that up in wellington and people get very cagey and very (laughs) you know because it's this funny place where you know everyone talks about decolonizing and and helping uh you know helping the maori and this very paternal i hate it because they don't fucking need help yeah you, you, you know, you, the Wellington kids are the you know, these white kids working in the Ministry of Social Development are the ones who need help because they are deeply mis, misguided. Um, Maori culture has a lot of mana. It's very beautiful and um, stoic culture. Mm-hmm. And um, I think there's a lot of value to be had there. But when you've got these kids with their latte and they sort of yeah. saying, oh, kia ora, you know, like, mm-hmm. it's like, fuck you. But, uh, <laughs> uh, but you know, they, they say, fuck you and just leave me alone.
1: Yeah, I mean, I also feel that Maori community have actually very strong values and a lot we should be learning from them rather than trying to impose our values, which quite often are very minuscule to teach them. I have a good friend from Maori community who uh, did diving instructor course with me two years ago here in Wellington. Oh, in um, Island Bay? In Island Bay? Yeah, yeah. So there was actually, uh, I was very happy to met him because that gives me a bit more closer look to maoris and how they live and uh, and how is it about and i firstly really appreciate it and secondly similar like with the gypsies i learn more to appreciate them for who they are and their connection to nature nature to their ancestors to one another to the strong values they hold this is the this is the minority not only as a population, but minority in terms of value we miss in the world right yeah. now. And we should be learning and getting back to this, you know?
0: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And as I mean, I grew up surrounded by this sort of stuff. And I think the the real insidious piece is there is so much potential there, but it's sort of like uh, undermined by the ideology of the state and left to its own devices and given maybe something like Bitcoin, mm-hmm. which they are free to use. I think there could be this real flourishing. And I think there's a lot of respect with that. You know, um, fuck off, leave me alone and let me do what I want to do. And yeah. it, it, it almost absolves all of these historical issues around property rights and, and, and land and all of that stuff. There's a chance to set that right because, you know, your you're far now and you're, you're, your family can have this private key, you can have a multi sig, you can take custody. And You know, maybe there was some historical issues, which, which, you know, there's a lot of problems there. But moving forward, you can take custody and no one can take it from you. So, yeah, I mean, I think this is a common thing we agree on. I think there's a lot of opportunity for Maori people. And it's really great to see your perspective on where New Zealand is at. Um, I certainly agree. I think we don't need the lifeboats just yet, but it doesn't mean... It's coming. It's coming. (laughs) It doesn't mean we shouldn't build them. Um, I lament, I can see it around me, the sort of decay... Of New Zealand, um, the New Zealand of my grandparents' generation, of white picket fences and state houses, and just slowly disappearing and melting before our eyes, and the architecture of it, even just visually, is starting to collapse. You know, what is New Zealand? Yeah, is the question I think.
1: Yeah, I guess also uh, it it uh, suffers a little bit from the fact that New Zealand is. Um, Marketed heavily to the rest of the world as a, this place where you can just have an amazing life, come here and be in the nature and, and such and I think that creates a lot of, lot of influx of people who maybe shouldn't be here, you know, people who think that they're gonna uh, go to Lake Taupo and buy their nice villa for the doomsday and when the rest of the world is burning they can come here and finish the living here and such so a lot of money come this way as a investment in new zealand housing and such which destroys the market for normal people here and also a lot of people who maybe should not be here because they don't really have any connection to life here to people they just come from the for their own selfish reasons to enjoy the paradise while the rest of the world is decaying and falling
0: Uh, admittedly though i mean pushing back on that i think new zealand generally speaking, is quite an integrated society, like compared to what you're talking about, London, Mm -hmm. you know, and and the stories I've heard of just like, you know, the the sons of rich Russian oligarchs, you know, who are just in their own bubble. For the most part, I think, you know, you know, the richest suburbs of Auckland or, you know, people down in Queenstown and stuff, even then that's still, they're integrated into the New Zealand project somewhat. You can't help but be part of it but i don't know how much longer that will last um i I don't think there's any real enclaves or Mm -hmm. like ghettos or anything but maybe one day we will see that and you know queenstown becomes the the doomsday bunker or taupo or something but um i don't know man it's it's something i think about a lot um and even the relevancy of talking about new zealand you know is it you know it's talking about the sovereign individual now but is the nation state even relevant as a topic um or is it really about local communities? Because Wellington and Queenstown and Hastings and uh, Auckland are all very different places. Uh, yeah, I don't know.
1: Yeah, I also kind of have, uh, I went to these places and saw different Bitcoin communities around because I lived first in Auckland for like half a year, then we lived in Christchurch for a year and a half and now in Wellington for two years and such. And I think the Wellington of all these places is kind of a little bit strangest. I mean, the yes. Bitcoin community is here so tiny, and uh, it's very hard to even find people to talk about it. And and so this was the main reason why I set up a meetup group here, not because it would be my burning desire to have one, but there was none. You know, so I came here and I was like, I want to find some people who are like-minded because i mean if you are bitcoiner and you have this idea that you really want to like see the progress in the world you want to see the change happening you want to have some people who think a little bit on similar waves. and if you are in a place for too long and you're just surrounded by people who rush to their day jobs rush to uh, pay the pay the rent and make sure they do their shopping and such it kind of gets a little bit hard for you so you kind of want to surround yourself with people who think similarly who have some good energy I came here I was like so where are some bitcoiners ah no one yeah.
0: <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> so well, Wellington is a contradiction and it's unfortunate because for me it's like the best worst place in New Zealand um, mm. I, I mean I struggle I'm from, I'm from Hawkes Bay which is unlivable um I I, I hate Auckland um, Christchurch is certainly on my radar more but it's so far away and it's it sort of... I, I don't know. I've sort of always come back to Wellington, and sort of once every every five, ten years, I kind of come back here. Um, you know, I was here for university, and and, and the second time round now, and it's like, uh, I, eventually, I, I see there's something there where it's it's chilled out. It's very calm compared to Auckland. You know, it's, mm-hmm. there's, there's not the same degree of hustle.
1: Yep. <laughs> but
0: but at the same time, it's like in this daydream where you know, you, the, the kids are protesting, you know, they're, you know, they're pushing the vegan, yeah. the vegan thing or some climate change thing. And it's like, look guys, you're so disconnected from the world. And the, the actual architecture of the city, I mean, half of it's mm. pulled up from the ocean. Like Wellington it shouldn't exist. You mm. know, like why? Who, who would decide to build a city here? I don't know. There's a there's a deep water port. I guess that's the only real draw card, but it's, yeah, it's right. It, it, you can't talk about Bitcoin. No. Everyone's yeah, cuz everyone's job is dependent on the government pretty much.
1: Yeah, exactly. That was my conclusion as well yeah. that everybody here either works for governments or banks and they are not the most receptive uh, groups of people to talk about Bitcoin.
0: I'm um, zed. Uh, I guess re- sort of beginning to wrap up. Like what what's what's next for you? Like we where what what's on your horizon?
1: So, I don't do long horizons. I do short horizons and my short horizon is that we are going to Nepal with a couple of my friends uh, in like month's time to climb some mountains and that's been actually uh, taking a lot of my time over like last half year because it needed a lot of training and preparation. So it was not so much crypto related but I think next year I'm going to look a little bit more into another way how to enter a Bitcoin space and be a bit more useful you know i mean it's nice to uh, organize meetups and do small things but i would like to get a little bit more helpful some way
0: yeah well you've had a few different business ideas previously right
1: yeah, I mean, business ideas are all right, uh, but I feel, you know, I'm in kind of a strange space because I feel like maybe I don't need to work anymore because if I'm kind of living a relatively, uh, relatively normal life, maybe I'll be all right for the rest of the life. But then on the other way, you want to do something which is going to be beneficial to others, which is going to give you some, some satisfaction that you're doing something productive and such. So I'm kind of in the space looking for what it would be. And I mean, there is a lot of projects I could think about, but I'm like, do I really want to like run a project? I'm very kind of chilled, calm person. I found my space in the life and I can just walk slowly and I'm happy, you know, with what I have. Yeah. So do I want to introduce, like build something and get people involved and get some stress and get some like f- things happening? Maybe, maybe not, maybe.
0: Yeah. It's sort of um, interesting like that proof of work when you realize that there is this great uh, failure incoming for the, the fiat system it's like well what are you going to do like if you can live a humble life you know i mean we're probably a bit similar you know i don't i'm I'm not a, a big spender i'm not trying to splash out on things because it's like you stay humble stack sats because if you can do that you know even a, a meager amount of bitcoin today is going to be very valuable in the future and it kind of unlocks these questions around well what is your real purpose you know and it exactly. sounds a bit it sounds a bit woo woo but You talk about climbing the mountains of Nepal and there's something just profound about that as this kind of difficult task to climb climb to the top of the world, you know.
1: Also, uh, it is quite good to, this was kind of my small project because we had to organize it with a couple of friends who are all living in different countries in different places around the world. And also, uh, it was quite interesting to actually, I had to expose myself to learn about human body. That is one of the aspects which I didn't do before. I love learning, but quite often I would be more focused on tech, you know, on Bitcoin or privacy or networks and things like that. But it was very different, but I enjoyed it. I mean, I feel like I learned a lot about human body and nutrition and how to exercise and I think I got in quite good shape. And so, you know, it all comes back to Bitcoin again because it's not just about like having money. It's about being healthy feeling fit, feeling strong, having good self-confidence, and then finding your purpose and give your life a direction where you feel comfortable going. So I mean, a uh, little bit longer term, I'm kind of building up options. So uh, we now are going to get permanent residency in New Zealand. I have permanent residency in Mexico and access to Europe. So I kind of can now travel around a couple of places And I guess probably in next few years, we will be thinking more of getting small pieces of land just to have some places where we could crash if we need to. And just, you know, uh, seeing how Bitcoin world unfolds because whatever, uh, what's being built now is gonna start coming in next year and year after. And they are like huge, huge things. There's gonna be such a development. No one thought about what's now being like prepared. It's really massive. So combined with Halving and a lot of other things, there's going to be a lot of things to do. Um,
0: I'm, I, I agree absolutely with your sentiment. I'm extremely excited about stuff. It's like, it's maybe on the outside, it seems like there hasn't been a lot of movement. But deep down, everyone that I know in mm-hmm. Bitcoin is heads down building. And it just takes time. And I think a lot of that stuff is going to emerge next year. Yes. And we've got the halving, as you say, ETFs. Everything's happening, so I'm excited, um, and I'm really excited to see your journey. I appreciate you sharing your story and you know details about your personal life and how you've come to be where you are. I think it's really inspirational, and it shows that you know, you, you know, you talk about growing up in, in in Czechoslovakia and the Czech Republic. You know, a young person not knowing what to do, being sort of alienated, and having to sort of escape and leave. You ended up in London, and that kicked off this journey, the Occupy movement, Mm -hmm. um, discovering Bitcoin. And it shows that sometimes you just got to let things guide you. Sort of the path reveals itself. And whether it's God or fate or or whatnot, certainly there's a lot to learn from letting the world show you the way. It's kind of funny you would mention
1: this because this was my feeling for a long time. I actually kind of think that at certain stage in my life I started to put a little bit more uh, importance to my feelings rather than thinking and I would just let let fate guide me and uh, strangely enough most often than not it would work very well you know I ended in a lot of strange places around the world not knowing what, what the hell I'm doing here or why did I come but then eventually everything would make itself known and I think in this age more than ever People should go a little bit more introspection and uh, just have a look, have reconnect a little bit more what you feel, how you feel about your life, how should you change it or not, because our brain is working nonstop, but those are informations we just get from our internet and social media and such. But there is something deep down there which can guide you a little bit better in this overfilled informational world we have these days.
0: Yeah, that's um, that's beautiful. Um, Zed, if people want to follow you or connect with your um, you know, your meetups, what's the best way for them to do that?
1: So I just set up recently Bitcoin Wellington meetup group, and or you can find me on Twitter as a viral dancer. We probably put it down under the uh, to the keynotes or something.
0: Yeah, yeah, sure. Cool. Hey man, thank you very much, Zed, for thank coming. Thank you up.
1: very much for inviting me. It was yeah. a pleasure.
0: Thank you. All right. Thank you for listening. I do hope you enjoyed the show. I am Cody Ellingham, and that was the Transformation of Value. If you'd like to get in touch, please send an email to hello at the transformationofvalue.com and I will get back to you.